Section 7 of Tanglewood Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Beach, July 2009. Tanglewood Tales by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Dragon's Teeth, Part 2. When they were bidding him farewell, Silex burst into tears, and told his mother that it seemed just as melancholy a dream to stay there in solitude as to go onward. If she really believed that they would ever find Europa, he was willing to continue the search with them, even now. But Telephassa bade him remain there and be happy, if his own heart would let him. So the pilgrims took their leave of him, and departed, and were hardly out of sight, before some other wandering people came along that way, and saw Silex's habitation, and were greatly delighted with the appearance of the place. There being an abundance of unoccupied ground in the neighborhood, these strangers built huts for themselves, and were soon joined by a multitude of new settlers who quickly formed a city. In the middle of it was seen a magnificent palace of colored marble, on the balcony of which every noontide appeared Silex in a long purple robe, and with a jeweled crown upon his head. For the inhabitants, when they found out that he was a king's son, had considered him the fittest of all men to be a king himself. One of the first acts of King Silex's government was to send out an expedition consisting of a grave ambassador and an escort of bold and hardy young men with orders to visit the principal kingdoms of the earth and inquire whether a young maiden had passed through those regions galloping swiftly on a white bull. It is, therefore, plain to mind that Silex secretly blamed himself for giving up the search for Europa as long as he was able to put one foot before the other. As for Telephassa and Cadmus and the good Thassus, it grieves me to think of them still keeping up that weary pilgrimage. The two young men did their best for the poor queen, helping her over the rough places, often carrying her across rivulets in their faithful arms and seeking to shelter her at nightfall, even when they themselves lay on the ground. Sad, sad it was to hear them asking of every passer-by if he had seen Europa so long after the white bull had carried her away. But, though the gray years thrust themselves between, and made the child's figure dim in their remembrance, neither of these true-hearted three ever dreamed of giving up the search. One morning, however, poor Thassus found that he had sprained his ankle, and could not possibly go a step farther. "'After a few days, to be sure,' said he mournfully, "'I might make shift and hobble along with a stick, but that would only delay you, and perhaps hinder you from finding dear little Europa, after all your pains and trouble.' Do you go forward, therefore, my beloved companions, and leave me to follow as I may. Thou hast been a true friend, dear Thassus, said Queen Telephassa, kissing his forehead. Being neither my son, nor the brother of our lost Europa, thou hast shown thyself truer to me and her than Phoenix and Salix did, whom we have left behind us. Without thy loving help and that of my son Cadmus, my limbs could not have borne me half so far as this. Now take thy rest and be at peace, for, and it is the first time I have owned it to myself, I begin to question whether we shall ever find my beloved daughter in this world. Saying this, the poor queen shed tears, because it was a grievous trial to the mother's heart to confess that her hopes were growing faint. From that day forward Cadmus noticed that she never traveled with the same alacrity of spirit that had heretofore supported her. Her weight was heavier upon his arm. Before setting out, Cadmus helped Thassus build a bower, while Telephassa, being too infirm to give any great assistance, advised them how to fit it up and furnish it, so that it might be as comfortable as a hut of branches could. Thassus, however, did not spend all his days in this green bower. 
for it happened to him, as to Phoenix and Silex, that other homeless people visited the spot, and liked it, and built themselves habitations in the neighborhood. So here, in the course of a few years, was another thriving city, with a red freestone palace in the center of it, where Thassus sat upon a throne, doing justice to the people, with a purple robe over his shoulders, a scepter in his hand, and a crown upon his head. The inhabitants had made him king, not for the sake of any royal blood, for none was in his veins, but because Thassus was an upright, true-hearted, and courageous man, and therefore fit to rule. But when the affairs of his kingdom were all settled, King Thassus laid aside his purple robe and crown and scepter, and bade his worthiest subjects distribute justice to the people in his stead. Then, grasping the pilgrim's staff that had supported him so long, he set forth again, hoping still to discover some hoof-mark of the snow-white bull, some trace of the vanished child. He returned after a lengthened absence, and sat down wearily upon his throne. To his latest hour, nevertheless, King Thassus showed his true-hearted remembrance of Europa by ordering that a fire should always be kept burning in his palace, and a bath steaming hot, and food ready to be served up, and a bed with snow-white sheets, in case the maiden should arrive, and require immediate refreshment. And though Europa never came, the good Thassus had the blessings of many a poor traveler, who profited by the food and lodging which were meant for the little playmate of the king's boyhood. Telephysa and Cadmus were now pursuing their weary way with no companion but each other. The queen leaned heavily upon her son's arm, and could walk only a few miles a day, but for all her weakness and weariness she would not be persuaded to give up the search. It was enough to bring tears into the eyes of bearded men to hear the melancholy tone with which she inquired of every stranger whether he could not tell her any news of the lost child. "'Have you seen a little girl? No, no, I mean a young maiden of full growth, passing by this way, mounted on a snow-white bull, which gallops as swiftly as the wind?' "'We have seen no such wondrous sight,' the people would reply, and very often, taking Cadmus aside, they whispered to him, is this stately and sad-looking woman your mother? Surely she is not in her right mind, and you ought to take her home, and make her comfortable, and do your best to get this dream out of her fancy. It is no dream, said Cadmus. Everything else is a dream, save that. But one day Telephysa seemed feebler than usual, and leaned almost her whole weight on the arm of Cadmus, and walked more slowly than ever before. At last they reached a solitary spot, where she told her son that she must needs lie down, and take a good long rest. "'A good long rest,' she repeated, looking Cadmus tenderly in the face. "'A good long rest, thou dearest one.' "'As long as you please, dear mother,' answered Cadmus. Telephysa bade him sit down on the turf beside her, and then she took his hand. "'My son,' said she, fixing her dim eyes most lovingly upon him, this rest that I speak of will be very long indeed. You must not wait till it is finished. Dear Cadmus, you do not comprehend me. You must make a grave here, and lay your mother's weary frame into it. My pilgrimage is over. Cadmus burst into tears, and for a long time refused to believe that his dear mother was now to be taken from him. But Telephysa reasoned with him, and kissed him, and at length bade him discern that it was better for her spirit to pass away out of the toil, the weariness and grief and disappointment which had burdened her on earth ever since the child was lost. He therefore repressed his sorrow and listened to her last words. "'Dearest Cadmus,' she said, "'thou hast been the truest son that ever mother had, and faithful to the very last. Who else would have borne with my infirmities as thou hast? 
It is owing to thy care, thou tenderest child, that my grave was not dug long years ago in some valley or on some hillside that lies far, far behind us. It is enough. Thou shalt wander no more on this hopeless search. But when thou hast laid thy mother in the earth, then go, my son, to Delphi, and inquire of the oracle what thou shalt do next. O mother, mother, cried Cadmus, couldst thou but have seen my sister before this hour? It matters little now, answered Telephassa, and there was a smile upon her face. I go now to the better world, and sooner or later shall find my daughter there. I will not sadden you, my little hearers, with telling how Telephassa died and was buried, but will only say that her dying smile grew brighter instead of vanishing from her dead face, so that Cadmus left convinced that, at her very first step into the better world, she had caught Europa in her arms. He planted some flowers on his mother's grave and left them to grow there and make the place beautiful when he should be far away. After performing this last sorrowful duty, he set forth alone and took the road towards the famous oracle of Delphi, as Telephassa had advised him. On his way thither, he still inquired of most people whom he met whether they had seen Europa, for, to say the truth, Cadmus had grown so accustomed to ask the question that it came to his lips as readily as a remark about the weather. He received various answers. Some told him one thing and some another. Among the rest, a mariner affirmed that many years before, in a distant country, he had heard a rumor about a white bull, which came swimming across the sea with a child on his back, dressed up in flowers that were blighted by the sea-water. He did not know what had become of the child or the bull, and Cadmus suspected indeed by a queer twinkle in the mariner's eyes that he was putting a joke upon him, and had never really heard anything about the matter. Poor Cadmus found it more wearisome to travel alone than to bear all his dear mother's weight while she had kept him company. His heart, you will understand, was now so heavy that it seemed impossible sometimes to carry it any farther. But his limbs were strong and active and well accustomed to exercise. He walked swiftly along, thinking of King Agenor and Queen Telephassa and his brothers and the friendly Thassus, all of whom he had left behind him at one point of his pilgrimage or another, and never expected to see them any more. Full of these remembrances, he came within sight of a lofty mountain which the people thereabouts told him was called Parnassus. On the slope of Mount Parnassus was the famous Delphi, whither Cadmus was going. This Delphi was supposed to be the very midmost spot of the whole world. The place of the oracle was a certain cavity in the mountainside over which, when Cadmus came thither, he found a rude bower of branches. It reminded him of those which he had helped to build for Phoenix and Silex, and afterwards for Thassus. In latter times, when multitudes of people came from great distances to put questions to the oracle, a spacious temple of marble was erected over the spot. But in the days of Cadmus, as I have told you, there was only this rustic bower with its abundance of green foliage and a tuft of shrubbery that ran wild over the mysterious hole in the hillside. When Cadmus had thrust a passage through the tangled boughs and made his way into the bower, he did not at first discern the half-hidden cavity, but soon felt a cold stream of air rushing out of it with so much force that it shook the ringlets on his cheek. Pulling away the shrubbery which clustered over the hole, he bent forward and spoke in a distinct but reverential tone, as if addressing some unseen personage inside the mountain. "'Sacred Oracle of Delphi,' said he, "'whither shall I go next in quest of my dear sister Europa?' There was at first a deep silence, and then a rushing sound or a noise like a long sigh proceeding out of the interior of the earth. This cavity, you must know, was looked upon as a sort of fountain of truth, which sometimes gushed out in audible words, 
although, for the most part, these words were such a riddle that they might just as well have stayed at the bottom of the hole. But Cadmus was more fortunate than many others who went to Delphi in search of truth. By and by the rushing noise began to sound like articulate language. It repeated over and over again the following sentence, which, after all, was so like the vague whistle of a blast of air that Cadmus really did not quite know whether it meant anything or not. Seek her no more. Seek her no more. Seek her no more. What then shall I do? asked Cadmus. For ever since he was a child, you know, it had been the great object of his life to find his sister. From the very hour that he left following the butterfly in the meadow near his father's palace, he had done his best to follow Europa over land and sea. And now, if he must give up the search, he seemed to have no more business in the world. But again the sighing gust of air grew into something like a hoarse voice. Follow the cow, it said. Follow the cow. Follow the cow. And when these words had been repeated until Cadmus was tired of hearing them, especially as he could not imagine what cow it was or why he was to follow her, the gusty hole gave vent to another sentence. Where the stray cow lies down, there is your home. These words were pronounced but a single time and died away into a whisper before Cadmus was fully satisfied that he had caught the meaning. He put other questions, but received no answer. Only the gust of wind sighed continually out of the cavity, and blew the withered leaves rustling along the ground before it. "'Did there really come any words out of the hole?' thought Cadmus. "'Or have I been dreaming all this while?' He turned away from the oracle, and thought himself no wiser than when he came thither. Caring little what might happen to him, he took the first path that offered itself, and went along at a sluggish pace, for having no object in view, nor any reason to go one way more than another, it would certainly have been foolish to make haste. Whenever he met anybody, the old question was at his tongue's end. "'Have you seen a beautiful maiden, dressed like a king's daughter, and mounted on a snow-white bull, that gallops as swiftly as the wind?' But, remembering what the oracle had said, he only half uttered the words, and then mumbled the rest indistinctly, and from his confusion people must have imagined that this handsome young man had lost his wits. I know not how far Cadmus had gone, nor could he himself have told you, when at no great distance before him he beheld a brindled cow. She was lying down by the wayside and quietly chewing her cud, nor did she take any notice of the young man until he had approached pretty nigh. Then, getting leisurely upon her feet, and giving her head a gentle toss, she began to move along at a moderate pace, often pausing just long enough to crop a mouthful of grass. Cadmus loitered behind, whistling idly to himself, and scarcely noticing the cow, until the thought occurred to him whether this could possibly be the animal which, according to the oracle's response, was to serve him for a guide. But he smiled at himself for fancying such a thing. He could not seriously think that this was the cow, because she went along so quietly, behaving just like any other cow. Evidently she neither knew nor cared so much as a wisp of hay about Cadmus, and was only thinking how to get her living along the wayside, where the herbage was green and fresh. Perhaps she was going home to be milked. "'Cow! Cow! Cow!' cried Cadmus. "'Hey, Brindle! Hey! Stop, my good cow!' He wanted to come up with the cow, so as to examine her and see if it would appear to know him, or whether there were any peculiarities to distinguish her from a thousand other cows whose only business is to fill the milk-pail and sometimes kick it over. But still the brindled cow trudged on, whisking her tail to keep the flies away, and taking as little notice of Cadmus as she well could. If he walked slowly, 
so did the cow, and seized the opportunity to graze. If he quickened his pace, the cow went just so much the faster, and once when Cadmus tried to catch her by running, she threw out her heels, stuck her tail straight on end, and set off at a gallop, looking as queerly as cows generally do while putting themselves to their speed. When Cadmus saw that it was impossible to come up with her, he walked on moderately as before. The cow, too, went leisurely on, without looking behind. Wherever the grass was greenest, there she nibbled a mouthful or two. Where a brook glistened brightly across the path, there the cow drank, and breathed a comfortable sigh, and drank again, and trudged onward at the pace that best suited herself and Cadmus. "'I do believe,' thought Cadmus, "'that this may be the cow that was foretold me. If it be the one, I suppose she will lie down somewhere hereabouts.' Whether it were the oracular cow or some other one, it did not seem reasonable that she should travel a great way farther. So, whenever they reached a particularly pleasant spot on a breezy hillside, or in a sheltered vale or flowery meadow, on the shore of a calm lake or along the bank of a clear stream, Cadmus looked eagerly around to see if the situation would suit him for a home. But still, whether he liked the place or no, the brindled cow never offered to lie down. On she went at the quiet pace of a cow going homeward to the barnyard and every moment Cadmus expected to see a milkmaid approaching with a pail, or a herdsman running to head the stray animal and turn her back towards the pasture. But no milkmaid came, no herdsman drove her back, and Cadmus followed the stray brindle till he was almost ready to drop down with fatigue. "'Oh, brindled cow!' cried he, in a tone of despair. "'Do you never mean to stop?' He had now grown too intent on following her to think of lagging behind, however along the way, and whatever might be his fatigue. Indeed, it seemed as if there were something about the animal that bewitched people. Several persons who happened to see the brindled cow and Cadmus following behind began to trudge after her, precisely as he did. Cadmus was glad of somebody to converse with, and therefore talked very freely to these good people. He told them all his adventures, and how he had left King Agenor in his palace, and Phoenix at one place, and Silex at another, and Thassus at a third, and his dear mother, Queen Telephassa, under a flowery sod, so that now he was quite alone, both friendless and homeless. He mentioned, likewise, that the oracle had bidden him be guided by a cow, and inquired of the strangers whether they supposed that this brindled animal could be the one. "'Why, tis a very wonderful affair,' answered one of his new companions." I'm pretty well acquainted with the ways of cattle, and I never knew a cow of her own accord to go so far without stopping. If my legs will let me, I'll never leave following the beast till she lies down. Nor I, said a second. Nor I, cried a third. If she goes a hundred miles farther, I am determined to see the end of it. End of Part 2 of The Dragon's Teeth